This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Syria is a country in the Middle East with a long and rich history, but with a difficult and chaotic present and a very uncertain future. It's a country that's in the midst of a civil war at the moment, but that's a war that the world has stopped paying attention to. It's a country under the rule of the repressive dictator Bashar al-Assad, and since this war flared up during the Arab Spring of 2011, it's been estimated that more than 600,000 people have been killed and more than 12 million have been displaced. But how did we get here and what is happening in that Middle Eastern country right now? Bob Bowker is a former Australian ambassador to Syria, as well as to Jordan and Egypt. He's also adjunct professor at the Australian National University for Arab and Islamic Studies. Bob Bowker, a very good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning, Rod. Thanks for having me here. Your career has been in the Middle East, mostly. We usually only hear the bad side of many of these countries. What drew you to them? Well, it was accidental, in fact. Uh, uh, I began uh, my time in in the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, as an Indonesian speaker, but I had managed somehow to uh, learn uh, Arabic script uh, in the course of studying Malay. And uh, when an opportunity arose to uh, open the embassy in Saudi Arabia in 1974, I jumped at the chance. But having been bitten by the Middle East bug on the strength of that initial posting in uh, the Arab world, uh, I found that I really couldn't get away from it. Uh, It's a bit like that Hotel California about checking out but never being able to leave. Uh, So I went on to have five Middle East postings, uh, uh, Saudi, Syria, Jordan, Uh, I was with the United Nations in Gaza and Jerusalem, uh, and then ambassador in Egypt, uh, which got me back to a number of places where I'd worked before and a a few others, including Libya and Sudan and so on. So it's been a a long exposure over 50 years now uh, to the Arab world uh, and especially, of course, to Syria. So Arab culture is one of the most fascinating and beautiful cultures in the world. How did you find the people in those parts of the world? And how close do you get to those people when you are an ambassador? You are the official representative of Australia in those countries. How close can you get to the ordinary people? It's an interesting question because uh, there's a great variety, of course, uh, in the Arab world. Uh, uh, A Moroccan has very little in common uh, in some ways, with someone from Oman, for example, uh, apart from uh, a, a common commitment to Islam as the defining culture of uh, their environment, uh, and of course, a language which uh, is spoken differently in, in different parts of uh, the Arab world, but which is still recognized as being a a cultural treasure and one of which uh, Arabs are incredibly proud. But the people are indeed the thing that keep drawing you back to the region. Uh, It's uh, an extraordinary uh, tradition of uh, hospitality, of interest in outsiders. Uh, It's a very cosmopolitan cultural tradition uh, mixed in, of course, with some areas which are very inward-looking and conservative. But by and large, uh, it is an outward-looking, engaged culture. Uh, the prophet himself uh, 
advised uh, his uh, fellow Muslims to uh, go in search of knowledge wherever it may be found, including as far as China indeed. Um, and uh, it is a uh, culture that prides itself on uh, uh, a commitment to hospitality and uh, learning that uh, many non-Muslims often fail to understand. Uh, the traditional qualities of an Arab gentleman uh, uh, are summed up uh, by an Arab poet as uh, my sword, my guest, and my pen. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, I think, a great deal that we have, uh, should appreciate about those, those qualities, even if in particular circumstances, in particular conditions, those might not always be at the forefront of yeah. uh, what you see. You were there at the time of the Iranian Revolution, and that is, in some ways, the birth of the modern Middle East as we know it now. Did you see a major change when the religious extremists, some would say, others would say moderates, those who lived in Iran, took over? Certainly the Iranian Revolution uh, set the scene for traumatic period in the region uh, and one which it is still struggling to work its way through. Uh, but the Iranians being Persian are somewhat removed yep. from uh, the driving forces that operate uh, within Arab society, uh, although there are some overlaps in, in uh, uh, you can observe that you do apply to Iran as well. In the Arab world, the, the drivers of change are education and connectivity uh, and a sense that uh, the old order has failed to deliver the, the jobs, uh, the sense of personal dignity and achievement uh, that a younger generation really expects to have. And when you look around any Arab university, you'll find that the overwhelming majority of undergraduates are women. If you look around uh, Western uh, investments in the Arab world, the employees of those hotels and insurance and banking and, and other service industries are predominantly young, well-educated women. And it is this shift to... Uh, women who are determined to make careers for themselves and with the having the wherewithal intellectually and educationally and in terms of dealings with outsiders uh, to make that possible, that we are seeing uh, this contest of values uh, which can only ultimately go one way, which is toward a more pro progressive uh, Arab society. Uh, and that's what gives me a sense of optimism about where the region is going. Uh, despite all this, the challenges and the tragedies that we see in places like Iraq and Syria and Libya right now, you still come away every time you go to the region with a sense that things are happening, that change is going uh, to continue, uh, and we will wind up with a, uh, a new generation of Arabs uh, who measure their values uh, and their achievements by criteria that did not apply uh, 50 years ago. So many people in Australia and the West would be surprised at your comments that women are in the forefront at university and in business. 
because we never hear that story and we only hear stories about countries like Afghanistan where women aren't allowed to go to school or recently they weren't allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. There are a lot of repressions on women in the Middle East. Are you saying that we've been told the wrong thing or is it just that this pace of change is very slow? I think we have for far too long assumed an approach to the region which is grounded in our own experience and our own notions of uh, what is appropriate uh, to the region. We fail to see the dynamism, the the local sense of agency, if you like, uh, in the Arab world, which is calling upon some of the experiences of the West uh, but which is primarily finding its own feet and making its own demands uh, for change. Certainly, they face incredible challenges in in all of this, uh, but uh, it is nevertheless something uh, which is shaping uh, the regional outlook. It welled up to the surface uh, with the uh, so-called Arab uprisings in 2011 uh, and was firmly stamped upon uh, by regimes uh, which uh, saw themselves threatened by open-ended questions about uh, uh, what will be the role of women in their societies and what will be uh, the effect of exposure to uh, political uh, openness and and criticism. I want to ask you about that. Bob Bowker is, I guess, former ambassador to Syria. Did Syria in the eyes of Bashar al-Assad, have an advantage in that way that he had seen what was going on in other countries like Tunisia, Libya, uh, and knew what he had to do to repress any uh, change that might come about because of the Arab Spring? I think Bashar arrived in his uh, position of authority with a vision for reform. But when uh, the... Uh, when the system uh, to which he was uh, introduced uh, following the death of his father saw the direction he wanted to go, it made it very clear to Bashar uh, that it would not tolerate the pace of change that he initially envisaged. And then as the, uh, as the upsurge of demand for reform across the Arab world gathered pace, that resistance within the Syrian system, as in other systems, uh, to uh, these open-ended questions being asked became even stronger. And uh, Bashar, I think, found it expedient to fall in with the uh, repression that was being called for uh, by the conservative elements within his system. To the great, one one of the great tragedies of Syria is that once the demand for reform uh, found open expression, it uh, was met by uh, this level of repression, which deepened the conflict. And as the conflict deepened, the opposition became dominated by the men with guns, who were very quickly, uh, predominantly, of an Islamist disposition. Uh, It didn't begin that way, but it became that way. It became a a binary conflict between the Islamist-dominated rebellion and uh, a system that was determined to defend itself 
at any cost. Yeah. Uh, a system that enjoyed the support of most Syrians in taking that stance. And uh, we are left, therefore, uh, with a system that, if you like, has outlasted the country itself. So you're saying that most people in Syria support Bashar al-Assad? Yes, I'm quite confident that, uh, well, shall I qualify that slightly? I think most Syrians simply want to be left alone, but they do not support the prospect, they do not welcome the prospect of a situation in which there is no longer a predictable form of authority uh, which uh, is uh, prepared to uh, accept that they may live their lives in a manner to which they have long been accustomed. That is a, a secular government approach or approach to government, one which does not dictate the moral behavior and the religious behavior of ordinary Syrians, and one which gives them at least a minimal degree of uh, dignity and, and personal security. The problem now is that instead of achieving at least that minimal outcome, what we are being witness to in Syria is a state which is a combination of Khabarat, the secret police, and a mafia-like business group around the people with power, uh, which is looks increasingly likely to be the model that Syrians are going to have to endure for perhaps a generation. Al-Assad succeeded his father, did he not? Uh, who would have been there when you were ambassador? Did you have much to do with him? Didn't have much to do with him, uh, but I saw him from time to time, uh, uh, both uh, when I was in Syria and also when I was accompanying uh, ministers and other visitors to Syria. He had a, a smile uh, like moonlight on a tombstone. Uh, he had in, in, incredible bladder control. Uh, uh, meetings with Assad usually involved a two-hour this uh, discourse from Assad about uh, the history of Syria and its and its uh, politics from his point of view. But he was also an extraordinarily brutal and effective operator within the Syrian system. Assad Senior basically was a man of his time, but times had moved on by the time Bashar uh, appeared on the scene. And I think most Syrians uh, welcomed uh, Bashar's advent uh, because he did bring uh, an impression of being in touch with what ordinary Syrians wanted. Now, he would put his kids on the back of his bicycle and uh, you'd see fridge magnets around Damascus uh, showing this was the president that they now had. And as I say, Syrians really looked forward to uh, Bashar coming on board. Why it did it all go wrong? The system couldn't handle it at that stage. Uh, the old guard from the intelligence services, the military, the Ba'ath party apparatus, uh, the entrenched business interests and so on, thought that Bashar was inclined to move too quickly. And uh, they pushed back against him. And ultimately, Bashar started to hesitate, uh, started to wind back on some of the uh, of the reforms uh, and openness to reform that he had initially exhibited. And then the uprising began and it all uh, went uh, backwards at, a, at, a, at an exponential rate. So I find it hard to see that there's any good thing about Bashar al-Assad, given that he is so 
repressive and brutal to his own people and has allowed the Cold War, in a sense, to be fought in his own country. Yes, uh, I think that one has to acknowledge that we are now dealing with a despotic, brutal regime that sets less store by the value of the life of its citizens and and those who would rebel against it uh, than it attaches value to the ideals and the values that Bashar initially brought to his position. It is a regime that will do anything to preserve itself and it uh, has squandered the, together with with the inputs of of its opponents, of course, Mm. it has squandered uh, the futures of probably a a generation of young Syrians. So what possibility would there be for any kind of democracy or a change in regime in Syria, given that most of the Middle East is not democratic? Israel is basically the only truly democratic country in in the Middle East. Is there ever a possibility that, that a country like Syria could experience some form of democracy? I'd have to differ with you on the subject of Israel being true democracy uh, when, uh, in fact, its, uh, its occupation of the West Bank and its effective occupation of uh, Gaza mean that uh, there are two systems at sure. play. And you've spent a lot of time Israeli in Gaza context. as well, we should point out. But uh, um, when you I talk about do, a parliamentary but, but, democracy, that you know what I mean, compared with the, uh, the um, despots that rule, or kings, repressive uh, um, regimes that rule the rest of the Middle East. Yes, the, the notion of, of democracy as Westerners would understand it is viewed now with considerable scepticism across uh, the Arab world. And even those who called for democratic reform back in 2011, 2012, within a couple of years, uh, had grave doubts about whether uh, they could actually make that system work, given the level of socioeconomic development, the absence of uh, traditions of acceptance of political difference and so on that apply in uh, Western democratic systems. The likelihood of those uh, values being reintroduced at some stage in the future to the discussion of where politics should go is very limited indeed. I think most uh, young Arabs are more interested in issues of personal fulfilment, of jobs, security, dignity, the opportunity to be their creative selves, than they are in issues of engaging in a in uh, in the sort of rough and tumble democratic mm. processes that we're familiar with. But people love elections. That's the other thing. There's nothing that is consistent or easy in coming to understand the Middle East. It's an incredibly complex place. People love elections. If they're given the opportunity to vote, they turn out uh, at levels that would be, I would suggest, probably higher than most Western countries that do not have compulsory voting. It's because elections are seen as being the answer to all the misery and problems that they see around them, that people go out and vote. Uh, But it doesn't mean to say that they necessarily accept uh, the outcome of those elections either. So you talked about 
people wanting jobs and security perhaps more than that democracy that we understand. But can you have jobs and security in a country like Syria, which has been at war basically or having a chaotic civil war at some stage or another over the last 10 years? No, unfortunately, uh, the the requirement is to both have stability and predictability as well as the uh, capacity to uh, generate jobs and food security that uh, ordinary people need for the sake of their families. And getting that balance right uh, is, is extraordinarily difficult. And if uh, people are faced with a choice, they will uh, fall back on predictability uh, ahead of uh, the opportunities to express themselves politically and the like. Have you been back to Syria since you left there as ambassador? I was last in Syria in 2010, before the Arab Spring broke out. I'm in fairly frequent contact with Syrian friends, of course, and I follow its its issues quite closely. But it's very difficult, of course, for a yeah. Uh, someone to go there now unless you have a particular reason for doing so associated with uh, uh, one's job. You were ambassador to Egypt up until 2008. Could you see change coming because the, the Arab Spring happened what, three years later and the Egyptian government was toppled? Could you see the winds of change? I wrote a book uh, in 2010, which argued that change was going to happen in the Arab world, but I did not expect it to happen in the way that it did. And so I spent the next couple of years explaining how I got it wrong. Uh, (laughs) What I misread was the capacity of ruling elites uh, in Egypt and also in, in Syria to acknowledge the dynamics of change were unstoppable, and I believe they would therefore incrementally introduce reforms to ease the pressures that the system would face if they did not adapt to those demands. Um, I was wrong. Um, The system proved far more robust and capable of self-preservation in the short term than I thought at the time. I was a little bit too swayed, I think, by my notions of the growth of liberal values in the Arab world. uh, And I did not apply enough critical uh, perspective to where those who were immediately calling for change and and rising in rebellion uh, were coming from. And those people uh, in the outer suburbs of Damascus and Homs and Hama or down in Daraa uh, in, in the south of Syria, or those people who were coming in uh, from the countryside in other Arab states were not people who were concerned about liberal democratic values. They were concerned about feeding their families. Yeah. They were tired of being, of being stood over uh, by the local police or victimised by those who uh, were calling the shots from the comfort of uh, their offices in, in Cairo or Damascus and so on. In a, in a sense, the Arab uprisings uh, took me by surprise, firstly, because the elites were not as responsive as I thought they'd be. And secondly, uh, those who took up arms were coming out of left field as far as our awareness of what was going on uh, uh, was concerned. How does the war in Syria end, or does it ever end? I mean, the Iran-Iraq war went on for 20 years or so. Frankly, 
I think we're going to see a long-term stalemate uh, in terms of geographic control, territorial control. Uh, uh, I think it's unlikely that uh, the Assad regime will be able to surmount the combination of uh, an entrenched uh, Islamist rebel force in Idlib province, uh, which has significant Turkish military support. Um, the uh, Syrian regime may uh, whittle away some of the autonomy that the Kurds are currently enjoying in uh, northeastern Syria. Uh, they may work with Arab tribes who uh, are sometimes at loggerheads uh, with the Kurdish uh, regional authorities, both in northeastern Syria and out beyond Deir Azur, uh, beyond the Euphrates. But that'll be incremental and, and politically driven rather than a, a matter of military conquest or reconquest on the part of the Syrian government. So I think we're probably going to see something like we're seeing now continue for, for a very long time. And with that, of course, uh, we are looking at, uh, as I said earlier, the loss of the capacity of ordinary Syrians in those places uh, to realize their potential. I think the only thing worse than being under the control of the Syrian regime would be to be under the control of the Islamist uh, Al-Qaeda-linked uh, leadership uh, in Idlib province in the northwest of Syria. Which is something that I think we may have to return to on another occasion. Bob Bowker, former ambassador to Syria, as well as Egypt and Jordan. I appreciate your time and thank you so much. Thank you, Rod. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio.